Today we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we confess that your word is our authority. We confess that your word is our only rule of faith and practice, that in it are all the answers that we need for life and godliness. And so we ask you today that those might not merely be a, a confession of the lips, but a confession of life and of the heart, that we would submit ourselves to your word. And so by your Holy Spirit, bring us under the authority of your word today as we listen and think through these scriptures, which are full of many difficult things, hard things to bear, hard things to hear, especially when uh, we uh, have a hard time conforming to your word. So Father, do conform us by your Holy Spirit and strengthen us by your Holy Spirit that we might heed and learn. Deliver us from all distraction, deliver us from all error, and guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tom Wolfe's 2004 novel, I Am Charlotte Simmons, tells the story of a young, intelligent, chaste, Christian small-town girl who graduates high school and she goes off to a state college where she is subsequently chewed up and spat out by the morally bankrupt, wildly fornicating student culture of the modern university. Tom Wolfe, if you're familiar with him, he was a brilliant, he died just a couple of years ago. He's a brilliant journalist and a social commentator, as much as he was a novelist. His novels are great. He read a few of those. I don't recommend them to anybody, by the way, especially not your 12-year-olds or your 14-year-olds. I'm not recommending them. I never, uh, they're, they're, what, what he does is he's, he's exposing the works of darkness in his books. And when you, when you lift the lid off of the, the cesspool that is these dimensions of American society, it's horrifying. It's disgusting but he shows it for what it for what it really is and so he was a journalist and he was a social commentator as, he, as much as he was a, a, novel, a novelist. And so he did his research and out of his research into dorm life at state universities, out of his research and interviews uh, there came this novel where he described life in a co-ed dormitory at a state university where nearly everyone is sleeping with everyone else all the time. That's just the case, that's just the facts, that's just accepted. But what was striking and what stood with me and stayed with me out of, this, out of this novel is that even in this depraved setting of the co-ed dormitory, he demonstrated that even the heathen have standards. There are unwritten rules, according to the novel and according to the culture of the novel, there are unwritten rules about who you can sleep with and who you can't. The guys can sleep with any girl they like, just so long as she doesn't live on the same floor as you. That's like incest, if you, if you do that. Uh, or girls can sleep with any guy as long as he hasn't been with your roommate or your best friend. You see, these are strict rules, and you get a lot of grief, and you get a lot of drama if you break these rules. Very strict ordinances 
are within this lawless environment. These standards are so ridiculous. If you're gonna live that way, why have rules at all? Why have any standards? You know, of course, I've got a standard for you. How about we don't sleep with anybody ever until we take vows with them publicly before God and the church. Unless we're protected in the covenant of marriage, let's not sleep with anybody. Well, this is a phenomenon that transcends college life and dorm life. That, that people will be wrapped up in all kinds of sexual sin and other forms of wickedness, but still there will be this latent, lingering concept of what is right and what is wrong, what is acceptable and what is not. So even when they're in grievous sin, there are still lines they won't cross. There are things they won't do. And Paul appeals to this in this letter to the Corinthians. He says, there are some things going on in y'all's church that not even the Greeks would put up with. There are some things going on in the Corinthian church that not even a co-ed dorm at a state university would put up with. Even the, moral, even the pagans would find this morally corrupt and repulsive. He says, it's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality. This language conveys that, that the, the idea uh, that, that this news um, shocked and horrified Paul, not that the sin occurred, you know, for, for a pastor with Paul's experience, nothing is shocking in that sense. But what is shocking is that the church is tolerating it and that they're proud of it. They, they were tolerating something that not even the world would put up with, that a man would have his father's wife. This kind of thing was forbidden by Roman law, you couldn't do this in Rome, not to mention God's law. Uh, Paul only mentions the man involved. I, I think this is interesting. He doesn't address the woman directly. It could be that the woman was an unbeliever. Uh, he also says that it's, his, it's this man's father's wife. He doesn't say this man's mother, so that probably means his stepmother. Still, He's crossing a generational line. He's sleeping with a family member. He's fornicating with a member of his family. But Paul really doesn't dwell on the sin itself. It's so obviously wrong. It's so obviously disgusting that it would curl the hair of a Greek, that it would, it would make a Roman sick in his stomach. We don't have to spend a lot of time explaining why this is wrong. In fact, he knows that just by bringing it up, there'll be enough people who are uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable about it. And no need to explain why this is sin. What astonishes Paul and why he needs to address it here is because there's no shame among them over the fact that this is going on. There's a lack of concern about dealing with the sin that seems to be an ongoing subject throughout this entire letter, their refusal to deal with what's right in front of them. Not only are they not acting, but as I've already said, they are proud of the fact that they have this man in their congregation doing what he's doing openly. It's, it's not a secret. It's not like it's this hidden thing that, oh, did you hear? Oh no, I've never heard about this. It's open. And they're proud of this. Maybe they're super proud of their tolerance. Look at us. Look how, look how easygoing we are. We're not like those legalistic Judaizers. They, they think they're so wise and so skilled in the scriptures and so learned that they've moved beyond these silly antiquated laws about who can love who and who can marry who and who can go to bed together. I mean, we're beyond that. We're above that. We've evolved. They're, they're, they're patting themselves on the back instead of dealing with this situation and dealing with this man. They should, Paul says, remove from their congregation this man who does this kind of thing. And what are you waiting for? He asks, 
What's taking so long? Verse 3, For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged as though I were present. I've already judged him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He says, look, if you're waiting on me to come there and sort this out for you, I want you to know I've already judged. I'm, I'm absent in the body, but I'm present in the spirit. If you're waiting for me to tell you that something ought to be done here, I'm letting you know something ought to be done here. If you're waiting for me to tell you. Now, this might have been their first big church discipline case. So maybe that's the reason for their hesitation. It, it doesn't answer, however, why they're so puffed up about it. Why are they so proud about this? Paul's description of what they should do maybe sounds shocking to us and, and maybe a little bit harsh. He says, what you need to do with this guy is turn him over to Satan. And that's, wow, really? Is that what you really mean, Paul? But, but that's not intended to be cruel or mean. In fact, this is the most loving thing to do. It's the most loving thing to do for the church and for the man. What Paul means by deliver such a one to Satan is to exclude him from the Christian community and hand him over to Satan's sphere of influence. Uh, there's this uh, idea that Paul's operating with is that the world outside the church is the sphere over which Satan has some power. And so to put somebody outside the church is to expel them from the place where the spirit reigns, where Jesus reigns, put them out of that place into the realm where Satan reigns. You take them out of the place where there's salvation and life and light, and you send them back to the world of death and darkness that they are participating in, that they are embracing by their behavior and their attitudes. And this is what the church is to do with a man who is publicly, pridefully rebelling and sinning and will not even admit that what he's doing is sin. It's, it's not done in an attempt to keep us from having to deal with difficult people or so that we can keep our nose clean or, or so that we can just be sure we have a respectable group of friends. It's, it's not a matter of shunning people we don't like. What's at stake here is the purity of the church and this man's salvation. This is done in hope that the man will be restored. The purpose, he gives the purpose of, of this man being put out of the spirit, I'm sorry, being put out of the church he gives the purpose of this. He says the purpose is the destruction of the man's sinful nature. He's, he talks about destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved. The assumption here is he's not going to thrive once he's outside the church. He's not going to live. He's not going to have blessing and life. He, he's not going to do well when he's put outside the church. Throughout the scriptures, Satan receives permission from God to test and trouble believers. Jesus told Peter, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But uh, when you've repented, come back and, and, and restore the brethren. Um, God, uh, Satan asked for Peter and, and Jesus delivered Peter to him to test him. God allows Satan to test and trouble men by weakening their bodies and by striking them with disease in the case of Job. So, so if this man continues in his sin after being put out, it may even result in his physical death or his physical ailment at least. Uh, later on in this letter, Paul talks about those who are falling sick and those who are dying because of their abuse of the Lord's table. Indifference to rampant, bold immorality in the church is deadly. 
It has real complications. There are real physical effects to rebellion. And Paul is impressing upon them how serious this is. Put him out that perhaps his body may be destroyed, but his spirit may be saved. And perhaps in the case of this man, he was sent out into the world and he found that not even his pagan friends, not even his pagan family would put up with this nonsense. And so he was caught between two worlds. Maybe he would see the contrast between the way things are for him out there in the world, cut off from the blessing and communion of God's people. He sees a contrast between that and the way things used to be when he enjoyed those benefits of fellowship and communion. Perhaps he would feel very alone, thrust back into the realm of death that he had fled from. And this would have a result of showing him bluntly the horror and the bitterness of sin with the hope that he would repent and turn back. That's the goal. This punishment is remedial. Let his flesh be destroyed so that his spirit may be saved. And I believe there was a happy ending to the story. If I'm reading 2 Corinthians correctly, the discipline worked. uh, the, The church put this man out and he repented and he came back. And in Paul's second letter to them, he tells them how they should receive him back and how they should express their love to him. I believe Paul's talking about the same guy in both situations. Church discipline has this connotation for many folks. When you hear church discipline or you hear excommunication, you think of bitter, angry church members kicking people out of the church for minute, petty things. You get kicked out of the church because you ask too many questions, right? You get kicked out of the church because you dance with a boy across the tracks, right? According to 1980s movies. Um, These are the kinds of stories that get told. And there are all these associations with angry, bitter Christians that people make. And that's, that's why we have excommunication. That's why we have church discipline. Now, has, has church authority ever been abused? Absolutely. Uh, the church is made up of sinners and sinners wield authority uh, in, in horrible ways. And churches are not immune to making really bad errors and really bad mistakes. But just because something has been abused along the way somewhere, just because it's been wrongly applied, doesn't mean that we need to be afraid of being obedient in this respect. And the way to counter all of the bad stories is to do the right thing and do it the right way. In all of this, we have to recall and have to remember and keep this in front of us. It's not about being angry. It's not about lowering the boom on somebody just because you can. It's about love. Every time I've ever been part of a case where we've had to uh, use church authority in this way, we ride the brakes long and hard. We, we err on the side of mercy. We call and call and call and call people to repentance. We try to get them the help that they need. We work with them. We, we are patient with them. But ultimately, it gets to a point where if they refuse to receive the call of, of mercy, if they refuse to repent, then we come to a point where we can no longer give them any false assurance of their salvation. And we have to love the church by loving her purity. We love the sinner so much that we're not going to let him just remain at the table and pretend to be a Christian when he's not. We put him out and we say, you're acting like a heathen and we're going to consider you a heathen until you start acting like a baptized person again. When you start acting like you belong to Jesus, we want you to be a part of us 
and we'll receive you with wide open arms. But we're not going to be playing games here. We're not going to pretend like this is all a big joke. We're talking about eternity here, and that's what's in view. Paul continues, verse 6. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I'm not, I'm not a baker, so I'm not sure that I can explain everything that uh, uh, goes into making bread, but this image of leavening is used throughout the scriptures in both a positive and negative way. Often it's used for the, uh, the, the negative effects of sin and the way that sin works itself out, and that's the way Paul is using it here. It's also used occasionally for the leavening effect of the gospel and the spirit on the world, that, that uh, the, the, the gospel works like yeast and working its way through uh, the... Uh, uh, the whole loaf of culture, as it were. But, if, uh, but, but this image of leavening is used, and Paul uses it here, we tend to equate leaven with yeast, but if I understand correctly, it's not precisely the same thing. Yeast and leaven are not precisely the same thing. Yeast is a kind of leaven that we use today, but not all leaven is yeast. There are other kinds of leaven. Leaven is anything that makes bread fluffy. It's anything that makes bread rise and light. Baking powder is a leavening agent. Leaven, in ancient times, leaven was an old piece of dough that had been allowed to ferment. And when you take some of the old dough to a new batch of dough, the fermentation spreads into the new loaf, making the bread lighter. Uh, and, and usually what is called leaven bread in the Bible uh, came from a starter, kind of like sourdough bread, right? That, that's how that works. Eventually, though, when you take an old uh, piece of, of dough and add it to the new loaf and you do that and you keep that old starter dough around for a while, eventually the starter dough could become spoiled and actually poisonous. So you have to throw away the old loaf and start over or else that little bit of bacteria would spread into the new loaf, into the, into the new dough, and, and then it would ruin the whole thing. The, the older it got, the, the more infected it got with the bacteria, the more potentially dangerous it could become. That's why leaven is such a handy metaphor for uncleanness and, and for um, wickedness in the Bible and sin. That's the backdrop of Paul's illustration here. So he tells them, your breezy attitude about this whole thing is not good. Don't you know that just a little bit of poisonous dough, don't you know that just a little bit of corrupted material poisons the entire loaf? You need to throw away the old starter. Throw away the old dough. Cast off the old world, the old ideas, the old way of living, the old idolatry. Throw all of that out so that you can start over as a new loaf. Since you truly are unleavened. And that's not the only thing Paul wants them to think about. He's not just drawing an illustration from the kitchen. Uh, he's pulling out a Passover image here. He wants them to think like Israel coming out of Egypt. And so he's, he's using this Passover image. Uh, he, he wants them to see themselves as those who are leaving the old world of bondage, heading toward the new world of life, because Jesus is our Passover. It wasn't a coincidence that Jesus was crucified, buried, 
and risen during Passover. God orchestrated it this way. This was deliberate. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus' blood is on the doorposts of our house. He gives us life and entrance into a new world. His blood is the mark placed upon us that spares us from the angel of death. And just as the children of Israel were called to clean their houses of any leaven before they set on the Exodus, so too the church has been called to leave Egypt back in Egypt, to leave Greece back in Greece. The old world is back there behind us, and we don't hang on to the things from that old world, especially to the food that we had back there, because God is going to feed us new heavenly food in the Exodus. So we leave behind Egyptian bread so we can eat manna with God in the wilderness. Heavenly food, heavenly bread. Paul writes, he says this here, he says, Jesus is our Passover, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. He says, so then let us keep the feast. Let's rejoice and live like people who have been set free. Let's sing and laugh and eat and drink and give thanks for every breath that we've been given because we've been spared. We've been delivered that, but we, we've been delivered from sin, but we can't do that. And we can't keep the feast as long as the old leaven is hanging around. So he says, keep the feast. Yes, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. The guy with the incestuous relationship here represents the leaven of the old world. And we can't eat and rejoice as long as he's hanging around acting the way he's acting. You know what it's like. You know how obnoxious people ruin pleasant times. You know how people who can't be happy, people who are just going to uh, gripe and complain and be upset all the time and be self-absorbed, you know how they ruin good times. You know how they ruin pleasant things. And this is exactly, you can't rejoice as long as you have the old leaven around. Uh, so all of our malice needs to go. All of our wickedness needs to go. We need to sweep up in the corners of our house, just like Israel had to do before the Passover, so that we can eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. If you don't purge the old leaven, it's inevitable that the rot and the rancor and the filth and the stench of death will spread to everyone. So clean house. A clean house is a happy house. And God calls us to keep his house clean. In the last section of this subject, the last section of this chapter, Paul clears up a possible misunderstanding that they might have had in regards to something he wrote in a previous letter. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my epistle, this is how we know that 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians, but to keep things clear, I'm not going to refer to them that way, but just reminding you that Paul wrote a previous letter to this that, that we don't have. So he said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with, uh, with judgment, judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Somewhere along the way, somebody in the church at Corinth got this idea 
that Paul had this hardline position that Christians weren't supposed to have anything to do with anybody who is immoral, that the way that you stay clean is you don't have any conversations, you don't do any business, you don't talk to your neighbors who might be idolaters or extortioners or fornicators. But Paul points out easily how ridiculous that would be. He says, if I meant that you weren't supposed to ever have anything to do with unbelievers ever, you'd have to leave the world. But Jesus himself didn't do that. Jesus himself didn't shut himself off from people in the world. No matter what their past or what their sin was, he invited them to come down and sit and eat with him. Paul accepted invitations to eat in heathen houses himself. That's what we're here for. These are the people who we are called to serve. We're not to ignore them because that does nothing for the reputation of the church or the advance of the church. Uh, this could be one of the ways that this congregation here in Corinth got a reputation for being arrogant and puffed up, by the way. Uh, that's not what Paul wanted. That's not what he told them to do. He writes, I've instructed you not to keep company with anyone who is named a brother who does these things. If, if I told you not to keep company with anyone like this, you'd have to go live in a cave. You'd have to escape the world. However, I will underscore and I will underline what I told you before. Do not keep company with anyone who is named a brother who does these things in verse 11. Um, he says, who is sexually immoral, who is covetous. The 10th commandment has been called the basis or the foundation of all the other covenants. All the other covenants, all the other nine covenants are an outgrowth of covetousness of ingratitude. We break the other covenants because we've already broken the 10th commandment. So this covetous person is someone who is in complete rebellion against God on every, on every dimension. He says, um, with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous, who is an idolater or a reviler, a reviler is a person who has no self-control when it comes to their tongue someone who is verbally abusive, someone who is just a fountain of, of criticism, a fountain of contempt, that is a reviler. Or he says in uh, verse 11, one who is a drunkard, someone who has no self-control when it comes to alcohol, or an extortioner, somebody who takes advantage of other people for financial gain. Now, if anyone who is named a brother also fits in one of these categories, he says, that's the person I'm talking about. I don't want you tolerating evil in your midst, and I don't want you associating with someone who pretends to belong to Jesus, but who lives in open rebellion to Jesus. That is what's going to hurt your testimony. That is what's going to hurt your reputation in the world. Not being friendly with your idolatrous neighbor, but putting up with this stuff in the church and not dealing with it. Put that person away from you so that the world can see some distinction. In fact, Paul says, you shouldn't even eat with them. Now, primarily he's talking about communion. He's talking about barring them from the Lord's table. But even more than this, when someone claims to be a Christian, but has ruined their life with uh, this wickedness and this, this uh, perversion, when someone leads a life that runs counter to their profession, there, there can't be a kind of fellowship with them that gives them comfort in their sin. There can't be the kind of relationship that puts them on any kind of secure footing that says, oh, you're fine, this is fine, it'll all be okay, it'll all work out. Part of discipline is showing them, you know what, you want to live like Satan's people, you got to see what that's like. But you have no part of the real 
warm Christian fellowship here. You can't keep one foot in both worlds. Paul goes back to the subject of those who are outside the church. He says, who am I to judge them in verse 12? What have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do, do you not judge those who are inside? You judge and deal with the ones who are outside. I'm sorry, you deal with the ones who are inside the fellowship, but those who are outside, the Lord judges. And then he quotes Deuteronomy. In the very end of this chapter, he says, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now, where does that come up in Deuteronomy? Uh, that's in chapter 17, uh, which I, I want to read just a, a section of. And if, and if you're following along, you're welcome to join me over there in Deuteronomy 17. This, in, in, he's directly referencing a part of God's law that talks about how Israel as a nation was supposed to carry out capital punishment for idolatry. Uh, you would receive the death penalty for idolatry in Israel. And this is where God sets up this ordinance. And this is what Paul references on this issue of uh, church discipline. So let me read from, from Deuteronomy 17, verse 2. If there is any found among you within any of your gates, which Yahweh your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of Yahweh your God in transgressing his covenants, who has gone out and served other gods and worshiped them, either the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of the heaven, which I've not commanded, and it is told you, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing. What does this progression sound a lot like? It's Matthew 18, walking through this, right? This is how you deal with it. You deal with it in an orderly way. You understand and establish whether in fact this actually is going on. Then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who's committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hands of the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. That's the part that Paul quotes. Paul quotes that very last verse. This is how you put evil away from among you. Now, that was a statute in Israel for maintaining order in a nation where Yahweh was king. In that circumstance, idolatry is treason and deserves, in some cases, the maximum penalty of death. Paul brings this up and he references this not because the church is supposed to stone idolaters. That's not what he's telling them to do, but to remind them that God has always taken this kind of rebellion seriously. What happens to Israel when they don't take this commandment seriously? When they don't, when, when they let idolatry run rampant throughout the land, what happens? Well, the kingdom disintegrates and the same thing will happen to the church if they don't also act. The church will disintegrate. And Paul brings this up also to equate excommunication with the death penalty. The death penalty is the highest uh, punishment, the highest judgment that the state can mete out. Excommunication is the highest and most severe judgment that the church can mete out. There's a similarity in both of them. The death penalty says from a society to a criminal, to a murderer, uh, to a vile uh, criminal, it says to them, we can't deal with you anymore. 
We can't, we can't restrain your sin. We can't keep you from hurting other people anymore. We can't do anything with you. So we're going to send you to God to let him decide your eternity. We're going to, we're going to uh, appeal to God's judgment. We're going to defer to God's judgment. And that's what the death penalty does. In the same way, we, in exercising church authority, we say we can't deal with you anymore. We can't, we, we can't do anything with you. There's nothing more we have for you. There's no other way we can help you. You won't repent. You won't listen. You won't turn. And so we're going to turn you over and let God do with you what he will. Now, not every crime deserves the death penalty and not every sin deserves excommunication. You really have to work hard to get the death penalty. And excommunication also comes the hard way. After lots of work to call someone to repentance, giving them time to respond, patient prayer and work, if there still isn't any sign of recovery there. Then you turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And in that way, it's the spiritual death penalty. Uh, it's the full extent of what the church can do in exercising her authority. Now, all of this sounds so unloving to the modern ear. This sounds intolerant and judgmental and abusive and legalistic because we don't want to exclude anybody from anything. That's not love, right? I mean, love is just letting everybody just participate in everything, no matter who they are or how they treat the thing that you're inviting them to enjoy. You have to be really nice and, and, and cool and uh, accept everybody. Today, moral indifference is the highest virtue. The highest virtue is just to be morally indifferent and, and um, let, let everything go on and never, never correct it. I mean, there are a few social taboos, right? I mean, don't sleep with the girl who lives on the same floor of you on the dorm. I mean, come on, we, we've, we've got to maintain some order in the society. But other than a few things like that, really, who am I to say something is wrong or not? Let people do what they're going to do. And that works for the church, I guess, if the church is just a club, if we're just this equal opportunity membership, but it isn't. We are people centered around our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ who submit to his lordship. We are the people who repent of our sins. We did it this morning. We will do it every single Lord's day that we come together. The first thing we do after we acknowledge God's kingship over us and drawing us to worship him, we're going to hit our knees and confess our sins. We are the people who confess our sins. We're the people who are open about the fact that we're sinners. And if you're not going to do that, if you're not going to participate in that, then you have no fellowship here. You have nothing to do with us. So in fact, putting someone out who isn't submitted to the Lord Jesus, putting someone outside the fellowship is the most tolerant thing you can do. You're helping them figure out who they're going to be. Push them the direction they want to go. You want to live like the devil? Well, go be with his people. Stop pretending that you're one of us because nobody likes a hypocrite, right? I mean, that, nobody wants to be a hypocrite. So go, go on. Is that unloving? Is that, is, is that closed-minded? Is the baker unloving when he throws away the bad poisonous bread? Is the doctor unloving when he cuts out the tumorous cancer? Is, is, the, is the vine dresser unloving when he prunes the vines? No, you love the body by cutting out what is diseasing it or preventing its growth. Uh, growth. As, as, hard, as hard as it is, as painful as that is, it, it must be done. The last, the last image I want to leave with you, the last um, observation, is when it comes to this exercise of church authority, I want you to think about 
the imminent judgment of God and his, his judgment against all rebellion and against all sin and wickedness. Uh, think of it, and this is not a biblical image I, I realize. I'm just trying to draw a picture. Think of it as a powerful freight train with a determined course. Trains don't run everywhere they want. Trains stay on their tracks, just as God's judgment isn't applied arbitrarily. God doesn't zap people with thunderbolts on a whimsy, but he has said clearly what he's going to judge. God has clearly communicated where his judgment is aimed. He has shown us what he is going to destroy. So that the prophets in the Old Testament cry out endlessly. They cry out to Israel and Judah, you're acting like Egypt. Stop acting like Egypt because God's judgment is pointed toward Egypt and Egyptian practices. Stop acting like Edom. You're acting like Philistia. You're acting like Canaan. So you're going to be judged like them. Judgment is coming. The freight train is coming to roll over Egypt and Edom and Philistia and Canaan. It is inevitable. So you, if you are going to live like a pagan, you're putting yourself on the tracks. You're putting yourself in the path of judgment. You can either stay standing on the tracks or you can move over and get off the tracks. Don't live like them. Don't think like them. Don't dress like them. Don't go around wishing you could be like them. Get off the tracks. The train is coming and everyone who stays on the track is going to be run over. Get off the tracks, especially if you find yourself in verse 11. I've written to you not to keep company with anyone who's named a brother who is sexually immoral. Is your heart so wrapped up with lust that you're so distracted that you can't even get anything done? You can't love your husband. You can't love your wife. You can't prepare yourself for school and prepare yourself for life because your heart is so encumbered with lust. Repent. Ask for God to help you hate your sin. Cry out for help and step off the tracks. If you are covetous, if you can't be satisfied with anything, if you are discontent all the time, if everybody else aggravates you all the time, the problem may be with you. If you're covetous and can't be satisfied, repent of your ingratitude and step off the tracks. If you're an idolater, again, whose heart is encumbered by all the cares of the world, Repent of your idolatry and step off the tracks. If you're a reviler who can't say or communicate in any way that shows you have any control over your tongue, if you're verbally abusive, ask for God to take control over your tongue to grant you wisdom. Step off the tracks. If you're a drunkard who can't control your liquor, if you can't, if you can't drink in moderation, stop drinking. Step off the tracks. If you're an extortioner who uses other people either for gain or for money or for affluence or influence, step off the tracks. Step off the tracks. And when the train passes, you'll feel the wind and you'll hear the noise, but you'll be okay. Paul tells the Corinthians, by putting up with this nonsense and acting like it's no big deal, you're acting just like the pagans. In some ways, you're worse than the pagans. Step off, step to the side. And if this man won't repent, and if he won't join you, you've got to leave him on the tracks where God's judgment is pointed. God's judgment is coming. And hopefully we pray that he'll see the danger he's in. He'll step off too, but don't stand there and get smacked with him. And that's what's about to happen if you don't step off. 
We take sin seriously because we take God seriously. We believe what he says. Taking sin seriously means self-control, self-discipline, knowing that if we fail to do that, God has created spheres of authority within the world that he requires to act in order to correct and restrain sin. A healthy church is one of those authorities God has put in the world to correct and restrain sin when necessary. And she must exercise that. That's his communication to the church. The first layer is self-discipline, self-correction. But if that doesn't happen and you're called to repentance and you don't, don't be surprised when we have to say, look, we're not, we're not together anymore. You're not part of us. That's what Paul is calling the church here to do. And so pray that as we continue to grow together, as we continue to live together in covenant, that we all would exercise such self-discipline that this is a rare consequence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Paul's clear instruction here. We pray that we would grow more and more to uh, live in obedience and in conformity to your word. Father, strengthen us, we pray. And bless us as we go throughout the rest of worship now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.